Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Steve Schmida to the show. Steve Schmida is the founder and chief innovation officer of Resonance, an award-winning global development and corporate sustainability consulting firm with more than 100 consultants and offices in Vermont, Washington, D.C., Seattle, and Manila. Resonance clients include Fortune 500 companies, international donor agencies, and leading nonprofits and foundations. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Raj. I'm really glad to be here. Steve, glad to have you. Steve, where are you currently located? I am currently located in what we like to call the People's Republic of Vermont, um, <laughs> just outside Burlington. How's the weather up there? Oh, uh, we're, you know, we're wait, patiently waiting for spring. Uh, it's what we call mud season here. So all, <laughs> everything is turned to mud. Well, I'm down in Dallas. And to give you an idea, yesterday was 78, the day before was 81, and today is 64. So we're going through the ups and downs. I think we're trying to get to spring. We're not quite there yet. Yeah, well, yeah, we're we're in the same boat, but uh, dr- drop it twenty five degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little chilly to me. <laughs> so, Steve, I like to open the show by asking my guest the following question: If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Oh, I would say maybe. Um, let me see. So, I, you know, I've spent my entire career. I, I, I'm 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 an American, so I was born in the U.S. But I've spent my entire professional career working on things overseas. So I've worked, I've worked directly in about 50 countries, and um, my company works in, in about 90 in, in total. Um, and so uh, it's a little bit of a different career path than I think for, for a lot of folks. And, and so maybe that's, that's, that's a good point. Can you give me an example of some of the countries you've worked in and some of the projects that you're doing there? Sure. Well, um, before I founded the company, I, I spent about uh, 10 years. I, well, let me go back to the beginning. I was a Russian literature major, so I, I was set up to be gamefully unemployed. <laughs> um, but then um, the Soviet Union collapsed while I was in college. And um, I ended up spending the first 10 years of my career, more or less, uh, living and working in uh, first in uh, Central Asia, in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, and then later in Russia. Um, and working on projects um, mainly to help with the, the transition from a planned economy uh, to a market-based democracy in those countries uh, with varying degrees of success. And then over uh, since founding the company, I, I've since gone on to work in basically all over the world, uh, a lot of work in, in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, a little bit in Latin America. I'm not a Spanish speaker, so, so a little bit less there. Um, and you know, the types of projects we typically get involved in are, we like to say we, we solve wicked challenges, right? We help companies, governments, communities come together around a a problem 
and, and try to solve it. And that could be an environmental problem. It could be a social problem. It could be an economic problem. So let me rewind a bit. Can you tell me about the decision to become a Russian literature major? <laughs> sure. So um, I was always, I mean, I was sort of a nerdy kid um, and was always had this sort of interest in, in the broader world. And um, in the latter stages of the Cold War in the eight, late, you know, mid to late 80s, when I was sort of in middle school and then in high school, became just caught the Russia bug and had the good fortune. Um, this was during the sort of glasnost and perestroika period of Gorbachev um, to go on a student exchange to, to Moscow and then what was known as uh, Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. And that really whetted my appetite. I, 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 I'm a big lover of Russian culture, Russian literature, Russian art, and uh, really just enjoyed living in that, that, that part of the world. Are you a fan of the Russian bot system? Oh, the Banyas. Yes. I, I, yes, I've spent many, many hours uh, in, in Banya and, and getting uh, beaten by birch branches and, and uh, you know, jumping out into to, to ponds or in, into the snow. Yeah, and, no, for sure. And the vodka shot to round it off? And the, and the vodka shot. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it's one of those activities that's right on the line between pleasure and agony. <laughs> I know what you mean. So, you know, you mentioned your company. Can you give the audience an overview of Resonance and your role at the organization? Sure. So Resonance is a global development and corporate sustainability consulting firm. And so we work on the global development side. We work with international donor agencies, uh, folks like the U.S. Agency for International Development. Um, we've worked with the Inter-American Development Bank and some others. And then on the corporate sustainability side, we tend to work with uh um, you know, Fortune 100 companies, names that you might know, like PepsiCo or Microsoft, Cargill, uh, that, that sort of thing. And what we do is help those companies and those organizations tackle really big challenges. So, for example, um, we worked with, with uh, say, PepsiCo and, and USAID on empowering women in PepsiCo's supply chain, particularly among their smallholder farmers in places like India, Colombia, um, and, and some other places. And we come in, we help the partners identify, the, the sometimes identify these problems, help define approaches to, to solving them, helping them identify partners that they can work with and who can maybe perhaps co-fund or co-invest in a solution together. And then once they've got the partnership together, in some cases, we'll come in and help manage the, 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 the implementation. Um, and so we do this in areas around like climate smart agriculture. We do a fair amount in, in uh, natural resource management and, and climate change. Uh, we, do, we also have done these partnerships in health, education, uh, renewable energy, um, pretty much in almost every industry vertical you can think of. Let's take the example of the small holder farm you mentioned. Why is a small holder farm somewhere in Asia important to PepsiCo? It, it's a great question. It's, it's one of these things that, that I, it seems counterintuitive. However, if you're the CEO of PepsiCo, right, you're, one of your largest growth markets right now is, is, is in Asia, right? And specifically South Asia is a major, major growth market. Um, and in a place like India, for example, the, the, as the middle class grows, the demand for products like crisps, right, potato chips, are, 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 are beginning to really grow rapidly. 
But in, in a country like India, um, you're very much relying on smallholder farmers to provide the supply of potatoes. And it's not really, especially in many countries, importing staple crops like potatoes, grain or rice. A lot of countries want to avoid that. They, they're trying to maintain you know, their domestic production. And so if you're the CEO of PepsiCo and you've got a growing demand in one of your fastest growing markets for potato crisps, uh, and you need more potatoes and agriculture production in India, uh, the productivity is, is declining because of somewhat because of climate change. Some, some also due to folks migrating from villages into cities. Um, you have to tackle that, right? That becomes a really big problem because if you can't get those potatoes, you can't meet your growth targets, right? That you need to deliver to Wall Street. And so it's a, there's a very direct business link between that smallholder farmer sitting in, in you know working in rural India and, and, and a CEO in, in a fortune you know in a fortune 100 company it, it seems a little tenuous at first but then once you start to think about where is the growth coming for most companies it, a lot of it's coming from emerging markets um, and then once you start to think through supply chains you can start to see the linkages you know I think people like you that take a holistic view of the world, realize that everything is connected. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's not only is everything connected, I think you you start to appreciate that that um, not only is it connected, but we all have like, we can all contribute in different ways. And I think that's really important, whether you're that smallholder farmer in India, you know, it, you know they have a valuable role to play in the global economy, right? And And we should never neglect that. You know, just because the, the CEO of a big company gets more publicity, you know, that's important too, but, but that we all have roles to play. Absolutely agree. Let's get tactical for a moment. You know, let's take the PepsiCo example. When does a client like that call you in and how specifically, maybe you can give us a framework or a lens through which to view the work you do. How do you help them when they have a problem or a situation like that? Or let me rephrase it in your words, a wicked problem. Sure. So, you know, I, I think oftentimes um, I'll, I'll say traditionally how companies have come to us have been um, they've recognized they've already recognized they have a, a wicked problem. Right. And, and uh, they're trying to tackle it. And I think a lot of companies uh, try to tackle these things on their own. Com these companies have a lot of resources, tremendous expertise, access to capital markets and, and that sort of thing. And they try to tackle it on their own. And, and sometimes they struggle with that and they don't get the results they're looking for. And that's usually when our phone rings is there's been a recognition that they have a persistent problem in the sustainability or impact realm and they can't quite get at it. Right. And they need other partners, other players to come to the table. And um, so very often what we will do with the client is first things first is get very crisp on on the problem definition what is it we're trying to solve and by problem i don't just mean a negative right it can be sometimes problems can be negatives sometimes they can be opportunities right um so i i don't want to frame it all as like dealing with negative problem uh, negative issues it can also be opportunities as well but get very crisp on that and then do some look at what the company's capabilities and resources are and then start mapping that against other stakeholders those could be international donor agencies, development finance institutions, non-governmental organizations, host governments, foundations, impact investors. 
and starting to map all of that together to see, okay, where do we have gaps in our ability to get something done to solve this issue? And where can others come in who might also have see this as an opportunity, right? Or have this as a problem that they're trying to solve. And so, for example, in the, the PepsiCo case, I, I, was, I was talking about, you know, PepsiCo, the reason PepsiCo was approaching USAID is USAID has a major focus on empowering women uh, generally, and a, it makes major investments in agriculture, right? So they had both the interest in, in smallholder farmers and in empowering women. And so for PepsiCo, that was a natural fit. Right, because they were also dealing with this issue of increasing agricultural productivity, and where they landed on empowering women was really interesting. So their their team did some research on on smallholder agriculture, and if you look at it, the number one way to increase productivity, yields, and income for smallholder farmers worldwide, right? This is pretty universal. Is increasing the role of women in decision making on the farm. And that's financial decision making, but that's also things like planting, how resources are being used and, and that sort of thing. And so that became the genesis of this, this partnership. And, that, you, know, I, you know, that's how the, these partners were able to kind of go from a, you know, PepsiCo was able to go from a problem to working very actively on a, what I believe is a $25 million partnership together to try to solve the, the, the challenge. That's amazing. You know, you've mentioned some very well-known names, PepsiCo, Microsoft, I believe you said Cargill also. These Fortune 10 or Fortune 50, 100 companies have a good amount of resources to put towards sustainability, ESG, SDGs, you know, from the UN. What about the middle market? Where do you see the opportunities in the middle market right now and going forward? I think as we come out of this pandemic, Raj, I think middle market companies are, you know, this sustainability question right, that, that has gone from being sort of a nice to have, maybe it was something the big companies brought to Davos, to the World Economic Forum, um, to now something that investors, employees, customers are asking about pretty intently. And I don't see this going away. And where the, the role of what we can bring to the table is to help middle market companies recognize that some of these issues they don't need to tackle totally on their own, right? That they can work in collaboration with their communities and with other organizations that have shared interests. And, you know, particularly when tackling some of these issues in sustainability that are quite complex, having other actors in to work with and, and to share resources and share risks and that sort of thing can be really powerful. And so I think in the middle market, we're, we're seeing I think um, I think we're going to see sustainability move very much to 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 the center of the agenda over the next four or five years. So, if there's a middle market CEO or you know C level executive listening to this podcast, if they reach out to you, do you have a, a framework or you know perhaps some kind of guidelines that will help them at least start looking or learning about these areas? We do, we do. In fact, um, one of the things that that I think we try to help you know, we would say to that CEO is sort of say, hey, look, you know, um, the first thing is let's understand, you know, have they gone through mapping their business, right? And really understanding where the sustainability issues are, creating some sort of benchmarking. A lot of companies have, have done that initial work very often. 
But then, you know, then the next step is what are the, the things that we can solve ourselves? And what are the things that maybe it's a, you know, a problem that is sort of outside the factory fence, but that, you know, the company's involved with. So for example, let's say maybe it's um, early childhood education in your workforce in a factory in Brazil, right? Or maybe it's a, um, you know, um, an issue around uh, the, the way a, a facility, an extractives facility is creating noise or pollution in, you know, in surrounding communities. It then becomes, you know, then what we're going to be able to do is help the, the, that CEO sort of understand who else are the other stakeholders, map assets, and then start to work on figuring out who's going to be the best, who are the best partners so that you're not just making partnerships because um, maybe the CEO knows the head of a local nonprofit and they golf together, right? And very often when you see some of these collaborations between companies and nonprofits or companies and governments, I, I call them golf course partnerships. <laughs> Um, and those aren't always bad, but they're usually risky. Like at the end of the day, they're, you know, they're risky because they're obviously, they're not data driven, right? Necessarily they're relationship driven. And so what we try to do is give frameworks for clients to be able to make data driven decisions around who to partner with, how to partner, and then what, you know, how to set metrics for success. And to tee off on something you said earlier regarding, you know, not always problems and opportunities. I think reframing some of these challenges around ESG or SDGs going forward, these companies can look at these as opportunities to differentiate themselves, perhaps from competition. I had I had someone on recently where sustainability can actually be a competitive advantage. Yeah, I, well, look, I think sustainability is going to have is going to be a competitive advantage in in sort of four or five key areas. Right. We've already talked about the ESG, the investor component. I think the second component is customers. Right. Depending on who your customer base is, the best customers are going to be demanding that, that you're mindful of these things. Right. So that's going to be really important. The top tier of your customers will be demanding this. Then the, the, another key element that often gets overlooked is your employees. Right. Most companies are in a battle for talent, right? You know, to get the best people they can working for them. And I think particularly with, with uh, the younger generation, with millennial and Gen Z, but even, even, even going into Gen X, I would say you can attract better talent by showing that you're committed to sustainability. I would say the, the, the fourth reason, you know, to, to really get involved, in, you know, to think about sustainability as an opportunity is, you know, the UN has estimated uh, it's about a $12 trillion market for the sustainable development goals, right? That that can be, you know, that can be tapped into. So it's a massive potential upside market uh, opportunity. And then lastly, I think, you know, it's also, to your point, an area for differentiation, right? Yeah, you can differentiate your company in the marketplace, not just vis-a-vis existing customers, but but raise your brand value as well. And so I, I think those are some of the ways that it, it can be not just additive, but even transformative. I like that additive and transformative. So I'm going to switch gears here and get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. You know, you mentioned Russian lit major, fluent in Russian, you know, lived in 40 countries. How did you come to start Resonance and why did you do it? What keeps you going? 
You know, uh, so I would say what led me to start it was an, uh, a, a series of epif- small epiphanies, right? Like it wasn't like one aha moment, but I was working in when I was working in uh, Kazakhstan and then later in Russia, I was working for an American foundation and we were being approached by multinational and local companies to manage their sort of corporate philanthropy programs. You know, maybe it was a program for an orphanage or a scholarship program for kids you know, all good stuff, um, but not very transformative or, or, you know, impactful. It was all sort of uh, corporate philanthropy uh, work. But then over time, what happened is those clients would come back to us and they'd say, hey, you know, we saw that in addition to this work you're doing with us, you work with entrepreneurs and you develop uh, small and medium enterprises. We have a problem with local suppliers at our facility in Siberia or, you know, any other location. Can you help us? And that was a, a real epiphany for me where I saw that the tools I had been developing as a professional in global development had relevance to, to core business issues. And so that was the insight that led to the establishment of the company. And so essentially what happened was um, in 2004, uh, my family and I, we were living in Moscow uh, as expatriates. And, um, you know, we, we uh, packed up and moved to Vermont. I, you know, I, I have family in New England, but not in Vermont specifically. So, you know, it was sort of kind of coming in cold to Vermont, literally, because <laughs> um, it was also coming to winter. Um, but that was, you know, but decided, had looked at the market and re- had recognized nobody was looking at this. Now, this was back in 2004, right? So we, we were a little ahead of the, of the curve, so to speak. But in hindsight, it turned out to be a good thing because I was coming out of the nonprofit sector. I had a lot to learn about running a company, a lot to learn about consulting, um, and was able to hang on and and learn why it, you know as the market was sort of slowly shifting towards the way we were looking at the world. Um, and then if you you know the question of what drives uh, what drives me, I would say I look at it as like we're in a race. Um, the global population is going to hit 10 billion, uh, roughly around 2050. And for the earth to look, you know, for this to be a habitable planet, we have to, we're in a race to try to figure out how to help markets and businesses head in the right direction around sustainability. And I think this is the type of thing where, you know, very often it's presented as an adversarial thing where you have folks saying, oh, you know, it's businesses and companies causing all these problems. And and that's not true. It's it, it's all of us collectively, first of all. And second of all, there are many great things that have, you know, over the last 30 years, more people have come out of poverty worldwide than in any other time in human history, right? So we're, we're getting a lot of things right. But if we don't sort of reduce our impact on the planet, in some way, shape, or form, and in a pretty serious way, we're in deep trouble. And so that's what kind of drives me is like, how can I use resonance as a platform to help others tackle these issues, right? That, that's the way I, I look at things and kind of what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, you mentioned poverty a couple of times, and you said reducing impact on the planet. Why is heading in the right direction important to you? You know, I think if we don't get, you know, if 
you know, the, the, the data suggests as incomes rise, right, um, a number of environmental impacts start to lessen, right? Because uh, people, yes, they consume more, more of certain types of resources, but they also consume less of others and systems become more efficient. Countries have more money to invest. Um, you know, if you look at what's happened in China just in the last decade, China went from, you know, has, uh, you know, you know, 10 years ago, the stereotype was sort of Beijing constantly covered in smog to today, not saying Beijing's air is perfect by any stretch, but there's been a huge shift there. And a large part of that is because as they've developed a middle class, the middle class both demands it and creates the tax base to, to clean it up. Right. And so I think it's the interlinkage between poverty and sustainability is really important to understand. We can't have a world of poor people and a sustainable planet. We've got to kind of bring everybody as much as we can, help everybody unlock opportunity and, 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 and come along with us on the journey. I don't know if you're familiar with Hans Rosling, but uh, he had some great TED Talks regarding the same thing you just talked about, about how when incomes go up, people's lives actually get cleaner and how we're moving that direction. I, I have. I actually had the good fortune of hearing him give a talk a number of years before he passed away at the State Department. And it was one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever got to sit in on. I mean, he, you know, he did all the data bubbles mm -hmm. and, and all of that. And I think he's, I think people so focus on the negative of what's happening in the world that they don't take a step back and really look at like, look, we've got a lot, we've made so many huge advances as a society. It's almost un unbelievable, right? Where we are today. And we just, what we need to do is the way I look at it is we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are things we have to change and work on, but there are so many wonderful things that have happened, whether that's eliminating, uh, you know, so many of these horrible childhood diseases, getting kids into school, right? Now, most kids in the world go to school today. That wasn't true even 30, 40 years ago, right? But most kids are in school, almost all kids are in school. Mm -hmm. um, and that's remarkable progress that I think we don't give ourselves collective credit for. And I think we should. And I think Hans Rosling did a great job of sort of calling this out. Yeah, he did some great work Unfortunately, his demise a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. So if my math is correct, 2004, so you're 16, 17 years into your journey, what some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned about yourself? Oh, well, I, I like to say I have the most expensive MBA. I don't actually <laughs> have an MBA. Um, but I've got the most expensive MBA in the world because of all the mistakes I've made. Um, and, and, you know, I'm fortunate that, that the company has survived them. Um, but I would say, you know, some of the biggest things I've learned are really the importance of hiring the best people who are also good people, right. And so that they have the right skills, but they also, you know, they, they, they align with our values and our vision, right. That that's really important. Um, I, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, and this is somewhat the nature of, of consulting, right? So it's somewhat obvious, but, you know, that have the importance of relationships beyond transactions, right? And so if there are ways we can pay it forward and help somebody out, even if they're not an existing client, we will usually try to do it, you know, to the extent we can. Um, and that's an important part of who we are as a company. I would say the other things. 
I learned as an entrepreneur were that I'm really not good at a lot of things. Um, and you know, in my case, what happened was, um, as the company started to grow, my wife gradually got more and more involved in sort of running the back end of the business, if you will. And, and at a certain point she was just like, you need to get out of like any running of the company. You need to go do your thing inside the, you know, you need to be out with clients. You need to be out, um, you know, working with people, designing solutions and things like that. But you know, you're not the best at doing running HR or understanding our accounting issues and stuff like that. And so my wife actually became the CEO. And I think she has been incredibly uh, important in, in our growth, because I think we would be probably 10 people right now. But if, if it were me, because I, I would be making lots of, of silly business systems and processes mistakes, <laughs> where she's really helped us build the systems and processes and the culture to scale. Well, I'm glad she's on your side. You mentioned earlier about hiring good people. How do you identify for good people? It's it's an evolving it's an evolving area. I mean, I think I mean first there are right the the, the competencies and skills. Those are sort of baseline and and relatively easy to 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 track. Then I think what we look for are what are those soft skills. Um, you know, we look for things like does this person evince empathy, right? Empathy is incredibly important in our work. Um, do they seem to have contextual intelligence? And in, in other words, can they place a problem in a broader context? Because often that's really important for us to help a client place a problem in a broader context so that we can bring others to the table. Um, authenticity, right? Um, we're in a, you know, we're trying to bring folks together to collaborate, but sometimes that means having it means being very authentic in your signaling and 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 with people so that they understand where they stand with you and vice versa. Um, and I think that's incredibly important. Um, and then lastly, we, we, we do look for folks who, because of the nature of the work we do, who just have this impulse to roll up their sleeves and help out, right? Who are the types of folks who say, oh, there's a problem. Oh, how can I help, right? That, that for us is incredibly important. It's very powerful inside of our, our corporate culture. It's a 99% positive. The 1% negative is that uh, folks can get spread really thin, right? Because they want to help out everybody. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that, right? And that's something that, that we're, we're, we sort of have to tackle and manage on an ongoing basis. But um, I would say those are, those are some key things we look for. I can see your hiring ad right now. Wanted, wicked problem solvers. <laughs> Yeah, you know, but it's I, we've discovered wicked is sort of, sort of has different <laughs> meanings in different contexts. So. It does, it does. <laughs> so let's move into the future here. It's twenty thirty. What's next? What does the future hold for Resonance? Magic wand. What would you like to see? Or how would you like to see Resonance in twenty thirty? I think maybe start that question, Raj, with what we'd like to see in the world, and then where we fit into. I it. love it. Take it from there. Yeah, I mean, I think what we want to see in the business world is that sustainability has gone from a nice to have to a really important to have to really central to corporate strategy, right? Because to be honest, in a world of 10 billion, you know, sustainability is going to be central to pretty much everything a business does. And so if at 2030, most businesses have started to recognize that they, they have to have sustainability pretty central to what they do, I think that's, we're, we're off to a really good start. 
And then I think for where resonance fits in on that is helping companies to be that are dealing with sort of what I would call leading edge problems, right? Things that are new that they haven't encountered before are around sustainability and impact and where we can really help out. I think once a problem becomes really well understood and goes from a wicked problem to, you know, uh, just a, you know, a simple or a complicated problem um, where, where there's a known solution set, I think that that's where we see others coming in to, to play roles. We see ourselves constantly as like, we're the ones really tackling the really hard, thorny problems to solve. I like that. You take care of the thorny problems and once you can systemize it, you pass it on. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it, it keeps us on our toes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, Steve, last question, and this could be professional or personal, but if you could share some advice and, you know, while you were talking, I can really sense enthusiasm and also optimism, just the way you're reframing some of your answers, especially around problems and opportunities. But if you could share some words of advice or wisdom with the audience, what would it be? I would say, you know, um, I think, you know, as I was saying before, I think I am an optimist. And I think thinking about the world as, yes, we have a lot of problems we're facing and, and, and they're serious ones. But always keeping in mind that that you know we do have the opportunity and we're empowered in so many ways to, to solve them. And I think along those lines, you know, I think it's important um, for young professionals in particular, right, to be very very intentional as they're picking their career paths, right? Because if you want to be, if you want a better world, you have to position yourself. You don't have to go out and be an activist although that's a great thing to do. I'm not degrading being an activist, but there are many other ways you, there are so many ways with whatever skill set you have that you can be part of the solution. And I think thinking of yourself as having a role in the solution to some of these challenges, I think is really, really important because then that gives you the energy to drive forward, you know, and, and, and gives you a, a more optimistic and positive outlook. So I, I think those are some, some thoughts, um, some initial thoughts. Steve, I appreciate it, and I really enjoyed speaking with you, and I look forward to watching your ideas around resonance come to fruition. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? No, Raj, this has been wonderful. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. This has been a, a, a fun discussion, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I, I look forward to, to, to continuing the dialogue. I do too, Steve, and I guess it would be correct to say das vidanya. Or you could, we could also say paka paka, which means just for, in a little while. <laughs> <laughs> in a little while then, Steve. You take care, okay? You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production